This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Education during the Revolution of 2020. Many of the various elements of the Revolution of 2020 focus upon education. There are demands for sweeping changes in both the curriculum of the schools and the ways in which those schools function. Today, the Return to Order moment will focus upon three aspects of the demands that these dark forces have in mind for our schools. The first concerns the deeply flawed 1619 Project, published by the New York Times and being actively promoted by a variety of leftist organizations. So first, the Return to Order moment presents Edwin Benson's The Goals of the 1619 Project to Produce Good Little Leftists. Public schools can represent the most socialist aspect of American life. The New York Times is trying to make sure that your child becomes a committed leftist. In August 2019, the Times released its 1619 Project. The webpage that the Times produced to support it shows a seascape and begins, quote, in August of 1619. A ship appeared on this horizon near Port Comfort, a coastal port in the English colony of Virginia. It carried more than 20 enslaved Africans who were sold to the colonists. No aspect of the country that would be formed here has been untouched by the years of slavery that followed. On the 400th anniversary of this faithful moment, it is finally time to tell our story truthfully." Their clear intent is to tell readers that everything they know about the history of the United States is wrong. Slavery is the real basis of everything. 1619 is, quote-unquote, our true founding. Christopher Columbus in 1492, Jamestown in 1607, or the Mayflower in 1620, all pale in importance next to the importation of 20 enslaved Africans. The site points readers to a series of essays, podcasts, and quote-unquote original literary works. Together, they present their jaundiced view of the American experience. Slavery is the root of all of modern America's social ills, as defined by the contemporary left. The first three titles in this series will suffice to illustrate. 1. Our democracy's founding ideals were false when they were written. Black Americans have fought to make them true. 2. If you want to understand the brutality of American capitalism, you have to start on the plantation. 3. They have been forged in trauma. They had been made black by those who believed themselves to be white. Few readers of the New York Times Magazine for August 14, 2019, read all of the essays. The primary audience was far more critical. The teachers of American history, especially those new to the profession. As a retired history teacher who has watched the decay of teaching, I can attest to how projects like 1619 impact the classroom. Neophyte history teachers must teach subjects about which they know little. Many of their college courses focus on quote-unquote educational pedagogy, according to the prevailing and failed ideology of John Dewey. Buffalo State University in New York is typical. Budding social studies teachers are required to take 13 courses in social studies, 
spread out among U.S. history, two courses, New York State history, one, world civilizations, three, geography, two, political science, one, economics, one, and three electives from any of those fields. A new American history teacher may well have only taken two university-level courses in the subject. Those teachers' educations are, to use a common expression, a mile wide and an inch deep. From that inch, they need to fashion a course. It is a Herculean task. New teachers often need to learn the material before they can mold it into lessons. It is common for them to work an extra five to six hours every day in order to stay a day or two ahead of the students. The necessity makes them vulnerable to any source of lessons that can give them a leg up. Since they know so little about their topics, they are ill-equipped to evaluate these sources. When the purveyor of quote-unquote all the news that's fit to print throws a figurative lifesaver to these foundering teachers, they are quick to seize it. The project's version of history came as a shock to some of America's foremost historians. Pulitzer Prize winner Gordon Wood of Brown University, the author of the highly reputed The Radicalism of the American Revolution, recorded his dismay in a recent interview, quote, I was surprised when I opened my Sunday New York Times in August and found the magazine containing the project. I had no warning about this. I read the first essay, which alleges that the revolution occurred primarily because of the Americans' desire to save their slaves. I just couldn't believe this. At the time of the Revolution, the Virginians had more slaves than they knew what to do with, so they were eager to end the international slave trade, unquote. James McPherson of Princeton is the author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning Battle Cry of Freedom, often regarded as the best single-volume account of the Civil War. He registered a similar surprise, quote, I was disturbed by what seemed like a very unbalanced, one-sided account which lacked context and perspective on the complexity of slavery, which was clearly, obviously, not an exclusively American institution, but existed throughout history. And in the United States, too, there was not only slavery, but also an anti-slavery movement. So I thought the account focused so narrowly on that part of the story that it left most of the history out. Unquote. It is foolish to deny that African slavery is one of the great issues of American history. However, the pretense that slavery is the only relevant issue is as dangerous as ignoring it altogether. This emphasis skews the minds of the students in the direction of quote-unquote social justice. In this scenario, radical leftists become the only principled actors on the political stage. The 1619 Project follows in the wake of the trendy A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. This poorly researched, plagiarized, and slanted account of American history has already done incalculable harm to both teachers and students. Jesse Jackson described the 1619 Project in glowing terms. His Chicago Sun-Times editorial says, quote, Blacks suffered under slavery for 250 years and brutal racial apartheid for a century more. We have been legally free for just 50. Americans prefer not to face this reality. Our history classes address it gingerly, if at all.
unquote. This affirmation is untrue. In my 34 years as an American history teacher, I never treated the subject gingerly, nor did my associates. We did try to provide some balance, to consider those who opposed slavery, and to explain the reasons that finding a solution proved to be so difficult. The study of history helps students understand the culture in which they live. The 1619 Project does not promote that end. It presents a simplistic vision that casts all Americans as either victims or oppressors. Such an analysis may fit the favored narratives of the left, but it does not adequately educate our children. End of The Goal of the 1619 Project To Produce Good Little Leftists The next aspect of education that we will examine is the fact that schools are going to extremes to mitigate a disease, COVID-19, that seldom affects otherwise healthy children. Mr. John Horvath II examines this in his article, Why Are Schools Changing Everything for a Virus That Isn't Killing Children? School districts across the nation are sending out notices about fall classes in 2020. They are asking parents how they would like to structure the classes, considering the coronavirus crisis. Some districts are thinking about holding two daily class schedules, given the need for social distancing and other protocols. Buses will run half empty. Some districts are mandating major structural changes, such as remodeling bathrooms, so that each one can have an entrance and exit door. The massive scale of changes needed is forcing other students to cancel fall classes. These will again be held in the disastrous virtual classroom until the preparations are made. In any case, the possibility of a second wave of the virus is leading many to consider cutting the school year short. All these measures are implemented to safeguard the health and welfare of children. No sacrifice is too great to ensure their safety. In matters of public health, no child can be left behind. All this concern for the children is commendable. However, these measures are based on false premises and little science. The school districts seem to be operating in a surreal universe, divorced from medical reality. They are mandating huge and expensive changes to address a problem that has no proportion to the risks involved. It is as if they were dealing with another virus. Indeed, Exaggerated reactions to real or imagined dangers is a definition of hysteria. Based on the data and the science that any American can access, it is not hard to come to these conclusions. The hard facts show that the coronavirus mercifully excludes children from its victims. While children can contract the virus, the majority of infected children have mild or no symptoms. The number of deaths is infinitesimally small. Healthy young people, in general, have an amazing resistance to the virus. Taking measures to quote-unquote flatten the curve among children makes no sense since there is no curve. Everyone knows that people older than 65 are the demographic most vulnerable to the virus. Inside that set is the even more susceptible subset of those with comorbidities or existing conditions. 
This over 65 age group accounts for 80% of those who die from the virus. The average age of those deaths is 80. The Centers for Disease Control, CDC, put it another way in a recent graph. At the end of May, those over 75 accounted for two-thirds of the deaths. Those younger than 45 made up less than 2% of those who die. That is to say, school-age children are a tiny subset inside this immaterial 2%. As of May 21st, only 14 of the 23,083 lives lost in New York City were younger than 20. Of those 20, 10 were between the ages of 10 to 19 and 4 under age 9. Many of these children had underlying conditions. And yet, all these massive changes nationwide in the schools are being made, considering this infinitesimally small number of endangered children. The emotional argument used to answer such an affirmation is to claim that even the saving of one child's life makes these measures mandatory. Indeed, it is easy to speculate about other people's children until the affected child is one's own. The answer to the objection must be to put it in perspective. The first response is to say that there is no guarantee that these measures are saving lives, given the virus's mild effect on children. However, the most powerful response is to compare risks. The Wall Street Journal, June 13th to 14th, reports that, quote, children under 14 are between 6.8 to 17 times less likely to die of COVID-19 than the seasonal flu or pneumonia, assuming 150,000 coronavirus deaths this year, unquote. They are also 128 times more likely to die from an accident. School districts would be much better served by combating the flu or preventing pneumonia rather than remodeling bathrooms. They might as well ban riding in the buses, since they are doubling their workload and increasing the more lethal possibility of accidents. They might stop recess to avoid cuts and bruises by exuberant children. No school can eliminate all risks, nor should they. Learning to evaluate proportional dangers is part of a child's education. The final objection raised by those demanding changes for children is contagion. While the children do not die from the virus, they can be carriers of it and infect their loved ones. Thus, children must be subject to all the precautions as adults. Again, science does not support this conclusion. Researchers find that children can get the virus and display mild or no symptoms. They are generally not transmitters of it. According to the review led by the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health in London, experts could not find a single case in which a young child passed the virus on to a grown-up. Some scientists believe the virus behaves differently in children, which diminishes the danger of contagion. Tests in Australia tracking 15 schools in March and April found no cases of students passing the virus to teachers. 
Taiwan never closed their schools, yet registered lower case and fatality rates than Western countries that closed theirs. Although there is no consensus on the full extent of possible transmission, the data and science do show children are not good transmitters of the virus. The risks to healthy families do not appear to be significant. Yet all these massive measures are being taken without proportional evidence to justify them. People need to be careful and practice hygiene. The medical establishment must be watchful for changes in the virus if there is a second wave. However, as it now stands, why do whole schools need to be restructured? School districts need to face the facts and follow the data. They need to make decisions based on science. Instead of reconfiguring the whole school system, administrators might do better to add more science and math courses. Then everyone could better evaluate how to cope with the crisis. This is the end of Why Are Schools Changing Everything for a Virus That Isn't Killing Children? While the leftists who run America's education system pretend to be motivated by health and safety in response to COVID-19, they are quite willing to sacrifice the children's safety to promote their ideological ends. Nowhere is this more true than in their campaign to defund the police. Mr. Edwin Benson sorts out this seeming contradiction in his article, How the Leftists Want to Make School More Dangerous. The current unrest has the left trotting out its tired arguments to take advantage of the crisis. This wave of anti-police sentiment prompts some leftist educators to argue against stationing police officers in schools. Often referred to as school resource officers, SROs, they provide three functions. They educate students about the law. They serve as informal counselors to students and they enforce the law within the school setting. According to the National Center for Education Statistics, 44% of all public schools have an SRO. These are about evenly divided between full and part-time posts. The percentage of high schools is far higher. 69% of high schools have SROs. Over two-thirds of them are full-time. A June 26, 2020 article in the professional publication Education Week carries the headline, More School Districts Sever Ties with Police. Will Others Follow? It told of several school districts, St. Paul, Minnesota, Seattle, Washington, and Oakland, San Francisco, and San Jose, California, that voted to, quote, suspend or dismantle school policing programs, unquote. Another article from the same publication shows demonstrations against SROs in Chicago, Pittsburgh, and Los Angeles. Police officers in any setting make the left cringe. There is an apparent contradiction in their thinking on the issue. On the one hand, they favor socialist programs that enhance the power and authority of government. At the same time, they view the embodiment of that power, the police officer, as a kind of quote-unquote jackbooted thug, insistent on taking their freedom. Separating the leaders of leftist movements from their ill-informed followers resolves the confusion. 
Socialists and communists see the policeman as a symbol of the moral order they wish to overthrow. Once in control, they use the state's power to impose their tyranny and stamp out society's pre-existing rules and customs. One organization celebrating the removal of police is the Advancement Project. Its executive director, Judith Brown Diani, is quoted in the Education Week article referred to above. Quote, I'm ecstatic. I've been crying for days now. Tears of joy as we see the country moving in this discussion around defund the police. Young people, sometimes younger than high school, are finding their voices in this moment and telling their stories. Unquote. The Advancement Project's report, We Came to Learn, A Call to Action for Police-Free Schools, sounds all the usual alarms indicating a liberal agenda. Quote, For many black and brown youth, the presence of police in their schools disrupts their learning environments. There is a culture clash between law enforcement and the learning environment. Police enforce criminal laws, while schools are supposed to nurture students, unquote. We came to learn then summons the standard leftist litany of complaints, quote, We discuss the documented harms of school policing, including the disparate impact that policing has on students of color, students with disabilities, and students who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer-questioning, intersex, asexual, LGBTQIA, unquote. The report's arguments are not new. We Came to Learn echoes a 2011 report by an organization called the Justice Policy Institute. That report, Education Under Arrest, begins with the following, quote, Fueled by increasingly punitive approaches to student behavior, such as zero-tolerance policies, the past 20 years have seen an expansion in the presence of law enforcement, including school resource officers in schools. Some cities, like New York City, employ more officers in schools than many small cities' entire police force. Districts from around the country have found that youth are being referred to the justice system at increased rates and for minor offenses like disorderly conduct. Unquote. The report blames police presence for several harms, including arrests, disruption of quote-unquote the educational process, and alienation from school. These, in turn, lead to those students, quote, becoming involved with the justice system, unquote. Both the Advancement Project and the Justice Policy Institute assume that the police cause the problems. Those who learned about human nature outside the immoral hothouse atmosphere of the modern university know better. The students who most resent the police's presence are the most inclined to commit illegal, immoral, or disruptive acts. That inclination does not rise from the police, but from chaotic home lives, gang membership, or simply sinful human nature. Mo Kennedy is the executive director of the National Association of School Resource Officers, NASRO. On June 5th, 2020, he released a statement about the unrest. Quote, 
We are, of course, dismayed to learn that some school systems have recently discontinued or considered discontinuing their SRO programs. Such well-implemented programs can help communities bridge the gap between law enforcement and youth, building positive relationships that can last lifetimes while helping to protect schools from a wide variety of threats. In addition, they can do so while reducing referrals of students to the juvenile justice system, unquote. NASRO released To Protect and Educate, the School Resource Officer and the Prevention of Violence in Schools in 2012. It counters the assertions in Education Under Arrest. Quote, As SRO programs came to prominence in the early 2000s, juvenile arrests declined 17% across the board between 2000 and 2009, the most recent year for which data was available. The violent crime index fell 13%, and the property crime index fell 19% during this period. And other assaults, vandalism, weapons, drugs, DUI, and curfew and loitering offenses all fell as well. In 2011, incidents of school-associated deaths, violence, non-fatal victimizations, and theft all continued their downward trend that began in 1992, unquote. Indeed, the numbers are so impressive that the Justice Policy Institute used the same figures to prove that SROs are unneeded. Education Week surveyed 1,150 teachers, principals, and district leaders. The results broadly support NASRO's position. The publication grouped those findings into five general statements. 1. Educators are more likely than the general population to voice support for the Black Lives Matter movement. There is much confusion about the nature of the Black Lives Matter movement. Most Americans confuse the movement as an extension of the civil rights movement that seeks equal treatment under the law. However, that is a very long way from supporting the radical agendas vocalized by those who claim to be Black Lives Matter's leaders. 2. Some Black Lives Matter activists say armed police should be removed from schools. Educators disagree. 3. Most educators support police because they want protection against outsiders and shootings, but nearly one in three want protection against students. 4. Despite evidence to the contrary, educators believe that school police officers treat students of color fairly. To this last conclusion, 91% of the respondents agreed. 5. Educators are most likely to attribute black-white student discipline disparities to discrimination. This statement appears to contradict the fourth conclusion. However, SROs do not make disciplinary decisions unless the student broke the law. School administrators do make these decisions. The anti-police protesters are the darlings of the media. They get the lion's share of the nation's attention. Their outrages make news and disorder. The media do a great disservice to America when they devote thousands of hours of airtime and barrels of ink to promote this leftist position. These opinions are not revealed truth. 
When it comes to police presence in the schools, Americans should go to those who know best and not leftist reporters. Those who are in the best position to know about the subject support the presence of police in the schools. Voters, taxpayers, and especially parents should keep a close eye on their school board's actions in this critical area. It takes courage to speak out in favor of the police in the current atmosphere. Real community leaders, rather than feckless bureaucrats and think tank liberals, need to make their voices heard. America's children's futures may depend on it. This is the end of Education During the Revolution of 2020. Thank you so much for listening. In times of great confusion, Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of clarity. We hope that this podcast fulfills that end. The prayers of our listeners are especially appreciated. To read these or find related articles, please visit our websites at www.tfp.org and www.returntoorder.org. If you have benefited from this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. In that way, you can help Return to Order be more effective. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2020 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, T.F.P.